Hello world and welcome to Podcast in A Minor, where I gather up the weird little songs I write and then talk about the temporary obsessions that spawn them. Or where I write new songs just so I can talk about something I find fascinating. It's like a memoir in songwriting to put a little music in your life, to cultivate the delighted mind and wallow in all of the wonders of this glorious world. Do I sound high? High on life and music, baby. And now for today's opening song. Four boys on the wind. Four boys going round the bend. Three come circling back again. Home, where are you? One has taken flight. Tumbling into eternal night. Hello, world, and welcome to Podcast in A Minor. I'm Amy Zollers, a poet and an artist, and I'm in one of my moods, a real boss mood. It's birthday month at our house. The entire month of September will be taken over with indulgent topics, my favorite fall things to think about. In some cases, I'll be writing new songs just to make this birthday month indulgence possible. You just heard Four Boys on the Wind, played on the Farfisa organ. I first began building this song eight or nine years ago. I worked full-time on a bank switchboard where five of us answered and routed calls for 11 different bank companies in the Midwestern U.S. It was not a bad gig. Nice co-workers, free soda pop, decor, and soothing forest greens and pumpkin orange. And as it was a call center, no one minded that I had plastered my cubicle with pictures of 1960s rock bands. One of my fellow operators said I should get a beanbag and a lava lamp in there, and I probably would have if we hadn't been on the verge of selling our house and moving to Texas. Like my mother before me, I had a knack for doing the job with friendliness and lightning efficiency, which freed up time between calls to write poems and stories, knit socks, sew my son's Halloween costume. At age nine, he was a crow person from the haunting game app Monument Valley, as well as time for reading and writing songs. Somewhere in all this, on those two years on the switchboard, I learned that the French title for the 1964 Beatles movie A Hard Day's Night was Quatre Garçons dans le Vent, which means Four Boys in the Wind because they're zipping all over the place, running from screaming girls, dancing and crashing around in a big grassy green space. Changing it slightly to four boys on the wind, which I just found less stumbly to say or sing, I put the first verse together and let it simmer a while. This podcast is pretty handy for dealing with unfinished songs, making me finish them, I wasn't one to busk on street corners, not really polished enough for stage performance. I was more compelled than motivated to do songwriting. 
Sometimes it burst out of me like a fountain. Sometimes a strong urge to solve the puzzle of creating a song around a specific phrase or subject came along. This one was built around the English translation of the French movie title, For a Hard Day's Night. This song makes me want to train my voice into the more ethereal style that I envied in Julie Cruz when she sang on Twin Peaks and other such singers, or the cool, deep vocals of Veruca, the female werewolf, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So good, some goals and direction, but for now, I give you the version provided at the top of the show. The key is the recurring line, Paul, where are you? If you come to the song knowing that the title is a play on the French name for A Hard Day's Night, and if you know that A Hard Day's Night was a live-action movie in which the Beatles pretty much play their most wholesome selves, you might make the connection to the Paul is Dead story. For my part, I first heard the story when I was about 12. My sister and I had each invited a friend to sleep over, and in the morning, over donuts, we stumbled on the old Beatles cartoon on television, specifically on MTV, as I've just read that they rebroadcast the 1965 through 67 television series in 1986 through 87, which fits my timeline. The series was titled The Beatles and gave us 39 episodes, each built around two actual Beatles songs. And although the Beatles did not provide their own voices, except in the song recordings, the cartoon The Beatles is considered the first to make cartoon depictions of actual living people. I'm not sure which episodes we were treated to that Saturday morning, but I certainly can't forget that Stacy, my sister's best friend since first grade, asked me if I'd ever heard that Paul McCartney was actually dead, but they had kept it a secret, and the proof could be found through clues on the album covers and in the songs. I am pretty sure the clue she mentioned was one of the surviving Beatles moaning, I buried Paul, in one of the songs. At that revelation, in that moment, I experienced physical sensations of simultaneous thrill and dread. It felt like some kind of electrical fog slipped into my head and my breath went a little bit short. I wanted more, more about this. I needed this unsettling mystery to guzzle it like I'd once guzzled half a two-liter bottle of 7-Up at the kitchen table after a vigorous party at the roller rink in my elementary school days. This, of course, was 1986. I couldn't just jump on the internet and find out more. My nearest option was the card catalog at the public library, which would take me to a book if one even existed. I hadn't learned to search for information in magazines yet using the microfilms and the microfiche. And yes, there was some sort of article in Life magazine, November 7th, 1969, a mere 17 years prior to that fateful sleepover in my childhood home, the very structure in which I now record this. But I'll get to that article in a little bit. First of all, I would need to ride to the library. And secondly, in spite of my history working in three different public libraries over the years, more recently, I didn't experience libraries as particularly friendly during my childhood, in spite of our library's location right next to the Totally Boss roller rink. You had to be quiet in the library. When I was six years old, a librarian yelled at me for fiddling with some contraption, probably a slide rule for book return due dates, kept temptingly close to the edge of the counter and at my shrimpy height. She, twice, sounded exactly like this, ahem. Leave it alone, child hater. Furthermore, 
The children's area, in quotation marks, was sequestered in a small corner near a story time, quote unquote, room with hard floors and hard wooden tables and harsh lights. They still had the asbestos floor tiles. You could always hear the loud shoes of adults moving across them, a sound for which my mind had created the stern verb courting. No, no, not the fun kind of old-timey romance courting, but it sounded like the shoes were saying the word court, 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 over and over in a serious voice coming nearer, ringing ominously, then becoming more distant as you shrunk between the wooden bookshelves. This was the sound you listened for in school when the teacher left the room for a moment. Everyone go a little nuts while half listening for the court, court, court of the teacher's stern shoes approaching. And another thing, I couldn't hunt down the clues in the Beatles albums. My parents had liked the Beatles all right, but they were juniors in high school when Beatlemania hit, and it all just felt too young to them. I get it. When the new kids on the block achieved stardom in 1989, I was a sophomore in high school, and while the Beatles music seemed to fit me just beautifully then, I wasn't subject to the alarming mid-60s emotional displays of hordes of preteen girls screaming at the Beatles, emotional displays that made perfect sense when I was 12 and saw A Hard Day's Night, but which I couldn't connect, you know, sensibly to the new kids on the block at the age of 15. My now sister-in-law is only one year younger than I am, and she was way into the new kids. I suppose my musical DNA and hers simply differ. The point is, my parents didn't have any Beatles records or old magazines for me to pour over. We have them all now, the records, though in a pretty good condition too, thanks to my father-in-law, who was born, by the way, four years after my parents. He and his brother joined those record clubs of bygone days. His brother was seriously into the music, and my father-in-law enjoyed the music but was more seriously into the audio technology. So his Beatle records and their covers, now ours, remain fairly immaculate. This little Paul is dead mystery floated around in the back of my mind for years. A dim little firefly that blinked at me once in a while, but not too brightly. I was busy in the school band and learning German, writing poetry, discovering grunge music and studying my male colleagues deeply and from afar and more than happy with that arrangement. But what do you call the Paul is dead mystery? I argue for urban legend although some disagree. In a study titled Rumor and Gossip, The Social Psychology of Hearsay, Ralph L. Rosnow and Gary Allen Fine said, quote, it is unlike many classic rumors. It supposedly reported bad news, yet very little grief or fear was felt. It had the makings of a budding legend or literary invention. The clearest function was its entertainment value. I mildly object, Your Honor, in that I felt a deep yet almost pleasurable fear when I first heard the scenario at age 12. The reason there was little fear or grief in the zeitgeist when the rumor first broke in the fall of 1969 was that Paul's death was said to have occurred in 1966, and the remaining Beatles had supposedly left clues behind in their songs and on the album covers. And to me, the idea that someone could be dead for three years and their death kept secret, la la la, nothing to see here, gave me a real spooky feeling. It wasn't until I got married and landed a receptionist job in the mathematics department of Washington University in St. Louis that I was finally able to drink deeply of the full story. 
The receptionist job was a little like the switchboard job. When there was stuff to do, it was buzzing. Beginning of the school year, midterms, finals, graduation, working on the newsletter for the math department and faculty search times. Basically, when school was in, it was a university, and students wanted to talk to professors or professors uh, who could dominate complex differential equations, needed help with the copy machines or refilling their staplers. Otherwise, I was seriously advised by the other ladies in the office during summer months and other slow times to bring a book. I'd been doing a lot of internet reading at that time. As a receptionist, being caught gazing at the computer screen was a better office look than reading a physical book. And in a gluttonous spate of reading urban legends online, I came back to the Paul is Dead story. And then I found a book written in 1994 Turn Me On, Dead Man by Andrew J. Reeve. The music library on campus had a copy and I was tuned with anticipation. The music library was hilarious, not exactly inviting. Where the main campus library was robust and comfortable, the music library, located away from the quadrangle, tucked near a Victorian house turned campus office known by my co-workers to be haunted, the music library reminded me of a privately owned TV and video rental store from my childhood, minus the heavy cigarette smoke, a little cramped and haphazard, and I'm trying to remember what the big handmade sign affixed to the circulation desk read, but I could almost swear it was something like, do not talk to desk staff. The man behind the desk looked like Murray from Stranger Things with his glasses, full beard, and wild dark hair. But I got that copy of Turn Me On, Dead Man, in my hot little hands. On, I like to imagine these two decades later, a perfectly overcast and foreboding summer lunch hour. Campus deserted, shelves of ominous nimbus clouds above, and I ferreted it back to my quiet desk in Couples One Hall, an old building that housed the anthropology exhibits and mummies during the 1904 World's Fair. And in my alcove behind the counter that separated me from the old wooden doors of the office entrance, I dove into that creepy mystery. Maybe this mystery felt so akin to a gut punch for me because I'd found the Beatles right before I turned 12, the summer I saw Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which featured their version of Twist and Shout on a parade float, and heard the song A Hard Day's Night in the opening string of old songs as the audience found its seats at a 1950s radio-themed variety show called Stacks of Wax at our local theme park, Worlds of Fun. So in a way, through my cassette tapes, through repeated viewings of A Hard Day's Night on video cassette, and through newly printed music magazines aimed at the 40-something baby boomers of the 1980s, filled with photos I could tape to my wall, I felt like I knew Paul McCartney, as many of the people in 1969 probably felt. George was my favorite, but I could not deny the heavy eyelids and dizzying smile of Paul. This familiarity, this, quote, friend of a friend quality, along with that gleam of conspiratory horror, makes the Paul is Dead story an urban legend in my mind. Spoiler alert, I do not believe that Paul is dead as of September 2022, but just for a moment, let's say Paul did die in 1966. Why would there be a cover-up? The prevailing wisdom says that if a beetle should die in the midst of Beatlemania, that would, one, collapse the economy of the United Kingdom and perhaps the Western world. Two, lead to mass suicide in young emotional fans. So under orders handed down from the Queen, the Beatles and their handlers would be forced to cover up Paul's death. 
But like I say, now more than ever, I'm firmly in the firmly in the Paul is live camp. And if you had the luxury of viewing A Hard Day's Night, released in 1964, approximately 200 times in 1987, then compared that Paul to the internet antics of the post-2000 Paul McCartney, you would probably feel the same way. Who could hope to mimic that gleam of joie de vivre, which means joy of life, that is Paul's? I have included in the show notes that scene in the car, We Ain't Written No Poetry. Do yourself a favor and watch it many times. I also cite something I read long ago in Tumblr, Paul's admission that he was addicted to fan fiction written about himself. I immediately wrote the following three-page fable, after which we shall wallow in some clues. T number one. Paul McCartney confesses to being obsessed with fan fiction, so I... Come away with me, he blustered. Paul McCartney was after me again to run off with him and have babies. I'd only swung by to hear his latest song, a song with Darling in it, brought on by an innocent muse, believe you me. I can't, Paul. Tony saw a ghost. He won't let me out of his sight these days. Ah, he did that kill the teenage girls thing with his eyelids. The car in between us, that poem you scrawled in nail varnish on the back of the Wedgwood plate. Right on, I said. Well, he's cracked, darling. Nobody sees ghosts in 1966. Well, Tony did. Blame it on the Tylenol, maybe. He just got his septum fixed, and I'm telling you, Paul, that nose of his is so shatteringly cute now, I can't take my eyes off it. Oh, I'd love to see it. So innocent, his tone. You'd die of jealousy, Paul. You would. It's celestial. But the real trouble is, now he's worried everyone will think he's had a nose job. On purpose, I mean. For beauty reasons. Vanity. Right, right. That'd be a bit girly of him. Paul pressed his lips together and his brown eyes roamed. He was thinking of starting up a rumor. I could tell. None of that now, Paul McCartney. Like a firework going off, he crashed into one of his explosive smiles. Then he drained his Wedgwood teacup. Read my leaves, love. No, no, I don't read tea leaves, Polly. That was your girlfriend, the model. Besides, last time I saw medicine bottles in that teacup of yours and you were fine. Nobody came down with nothing. Well, the dog got a bit of the mange. So it is only a bunch of hokum, but these mysteries of life are best left shrouded, you know. The cat spewed up a hairball she did the very next day, Paul argued. No dice, babe. Fortune-telling makes me edgy. Let's the devil in, Paul cussed suavely. My damned eyes fell right on his tea leaves. I wanted to gouge them out on the spot. A car! A coffin! I stood up, gathered cigarettes and matches and Q-Tex peppermint pink lipstick into my handbag. Look, man, I gotta run. I got coffee and French toast to prepare. Tony's such a lamb every time he smells food now, you know, since the septum job. Our Tony's always a lamb, Paul grumbled. Ain't he just? Look, excuse me, would you? I hugged him, overhugged him, in a manic sort of way, drank in his faded aftershave. Then I checked my wristwatch. It's Wednesday morning, I said, going on five o'clock. Well, you know the rest of it, the car crash, the death, and the elaborate cover-up, the absolute grand opus of all conspiracies for the good of rock and roll and the British economy. I never breathed a word. With all of our talk of cars and ghosts and tea leaves and death, I was a dope not to see it coming. But the Lord is right. It's better to leave these mysteries in their shrouds. The end of T number one. My Paul McCartney fan fiction never heard from him on it, but I posted it 
on Tumblr, I think. It's been years ago. Thank you for listening. Okay, let's get to the clues. Andrew J. Reeve agrees with Ralph L. Rosnow and Gary Allen Fine that the Paul is Dead phenomenon was mainly a source of entertainment, saying, quote, The great hunt for clues became a macabre game on college campuses throughout the U.S., end quote. Clues were demonstrated at parties and between classes, swapped through magazines, clubs, and personal ads, and broadcast through callers and records played backwards on the new FM radio format. A masterful summation of the legend from an article by Rob Sheffield in Rolling Stone magazine, October 11, 2019. Quote, here's how the rumor went, as summed up by Nicholas Schaffner in The Beatles Forever. Paul died on November 9, 1966. He drove away from Abbey Road late the night before a, quote, stupid bloody Tuesday, then blew his mind out in a car. He was officially pronounced dead. OPD, on Wednesday morning at 5 o'clock, which is why George points to that line on the Sergeant Pepper's sleeve while Paul wears an OPD patch. But the other Beatles decided to hush up the news, so Wednesday morning papers didn't come. Somehow, they kept Paul's death a secret, replaced him with a lookalike, then dropped sly hints about the cover-up scam. The imposter wrote, Hey Jude and Blackbird, which means he's the guy who probably should have had Paul's job in the first place. End quote. And now, a list of highlights from the wealth of clues cited by Paul is dead clusters, as they call themselves. The lyrics of A Day in the Life on the album Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band contains the lyrics, I read the news today, oh boy, and he blew his mind out in a car. This is now widely accepted to be about Tara Brown, Guinness heir, who died in a car accident December 17, 1966, and it's perhaps pronounced Tara Brown. He was under the influence of drugs and alcohol and hit a parked truck, swerving to save the life of his girlfriend, Suki Poitier, riding in the passenger seat. Tara was part of the swinging London scene, but American Beatles fans might not be familiar with reports of his death. And the Paula's dead folklore was an American phenomenon. She's leaving home. Contains the lyrics Wednesday morning, 5 o'clock, supposed to be when John learned of Paul's death, which happened on the stupid bloody Tuesday mentioned in I Am the Walrus. The Sgt. Pepper's album cover immediately hits clue seekers with a funeral scene. Beatles is spelled out with flowers. Another flower arrangement shaped like a three-string left-handed bass guitar, Paul's instrument, which also, with a flick of the eyes, seems to spell out Paul or represent the letter P. The younger Beatles, in matching suits and mop-top haircuts, are in attendance as wax figures, and next to them stand the Beatles of the moment, mustachioed all four. Clue hunters insist that Paul McCartney's replacement would have plastic surgery scars that must be hidden by a mustache, so the other Beatles grew mustaches too, so it wouldn't look weird. Clue break. This brings us to the theory that Paul McCartney was replaced by a lookalike from November of 1966 to the present. The story goes, Paul's replacement had already won a Paul McCartney lookalike contest put on by a music magazine or something, or that he would win such a contest, hastily thrown together after Paul's unexpected death in an auto crash. The replacement's name was William Campbell, a.k.a. Billy Shears, formally introduced in the first song of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. 
Some say he was a classically trained musician and so was well equipped to slide into Paul's musical role. He was said to be a Scottish orphan whom no one had seen or heard from since 1966. And now back to the clues. On the album Magical Mystery Tour 1967, we get the song I Am the Walrus. It ends with a death scene from Shakespeare's King Lear. Quote, is he dead? Quote, rest you, father, or sit you down, rest you, father. The Beatles contended that they had whimsically turned on the radio at random while recording in the studio, and that's what happened to be on that very death scene. From the 1968 album, The Beatles, usually called The White Album, in the song Don't Pass Me By, Ringo Starr laments, you were in a car crash and you lost your hair. The title of the song, Glass Onion, has been said to mean the glass handles on a Victorian-era coffin, according to radio personality Russ Gibb of Michigan, who tracked clues for and from his radio listeners in 1969. It is also reported to be slang for a crystal ball, through which many mysteries can be solved. From page 48 of Turn Me On, Dead Man, the complete story of the Paul McCartney death hoax by Andrew J. Reeve page 48. As night became morning, the disc jockeys continued to work. Carlisle had just transferred the song Your Mother Should Know onto reel-to-reel tape when Gibb entered the cluttered production studio. Danny, do you know what a glass onion is? Carlisle didn't look up from the tape machine as he spooled a tape onto the take-up reel, but his voice indicated an intense interest. You mean like in the song? Gibb took a seat next to his comrade and let out a heavy sigh. It took me eight hours on the telephone to find out what a goddamn glass onion is. I had calls to Oxford University, the Webster Dictionary folks, some guy in the offices of... Well, go on, Carlyle interrupted as he turned his attention away from the tape player. What is a glass onion? Gibbs stared straight into Carlyle's eyes. You won't believe it. Supposedly, it's an old British slang term for casket handles. Instead of metal handles, the 18th century British coffins had a glass ball that you would use to carry them. And if you're in the coffin, Carlyle continued, the line of reasoning, you could be looking through a glass onion. Right. And Paul is looking out, quote, to see how the other half lives, end quote. Outrageous, Carlyle exclaimed. Gibb glanced up at the studio clock. Hell, it's two in the morning. I've got a class to teach tomorrow. As he stood to leave, Carlyle clasped a hand on the man's shoulder and gently eased him back into his chair. Oh, no, Russ, Carlyle scolded as he switched on the tape machine. First, you're going to hear what I've been working on for the last couple of hours. An ethereal droning sound filled the studio as Carlyle explained the experiment he had conducted. This is your mother should know. The entire song is playing backwards and the Beatles are singing about God and death. Gibb felt a chill run through his body as he listened to something that sounded like a gothic wail. Maybe he was just tired, but he could swear that he was hearing phrases such as, I shed the light, and why doesn't she know me dead? Up to this point, Gibb was simply using the rumor as a promotional tool, not imagining for a moment that there was any truth to it. But now he was beginning to experience some strange feelings. He listened again. Yes, he was quite sure he heard it. Hidden in the reversed music track were voices singing, I shed the light, why doesn't she know me dead? Surely the Beatles had placed the phrases in the song on purpose. Gibb turned toward Carlyle in an audibly shaken voice, posed the question that was uppermost in his mind. Danny, do you think he's really dead? And that is from Turn Me On, Dead Man. A creepy moment, if you ask me. 
And so, uh, correction, they said it was an 18th century feature on a coffin, the glass handles. I said Victorian era. I'll correct myself right now. Okay, look. I don't want Paul McCartney to be dead, and I don't believe he is at the time of this recording, but there are a couple of audio clues that I can only hear as creepy and confusing. In I'm So Tired, John Lennon's anguish comes through in the song on a casual listen, but when he sings out, give you everything I've got for a little piece of mine, followed by unintelligible words, we are cued to play the segment backwards on the turntable and hear, Paul is a dead man, miss him, miss him, miss him. I find it very hard to hear a different message from that, probably because of how progressively more anguished his voice grows during the missims. In the song Revolution Number 9, if you've heard it, you know it is arty and strange, and the words number 9, number 9, number 9 are spoken over and over. When you play that part backwards on the record player, which audiophiles don't like to do because it ruins the needle, you hear... Turn me on, dead man. Turn me on, dead man. Turn me on, dead man. The phrase. Paul sang the words, I'll turn you on, in a later song, um, or an earlier song that it may refer to. I don't know. I didn't finish that thought. Maybe I'll come back to it. In the song, Strawberry Fields Forever, from the album Magical Mystery Tour, John later insisted, No, no, you fools. I said cranberry sauce. This is a lovely bit of information that I once included in the Thanksgiving edition of The Motherload, a newsletter I wrote for a mom's group years ago. But in truth, I can only hear it as I buried Paul, which is canon among Paul is dead clue gatherers. I don't want to hear it, but it's what I hear. Power of suggestion at an early age, possibly. But... I'm also great at folding to the power of suggestion, especially when people eat certain foods on television. I'm immediately preoccupied with, de- preoccupied with desire for cheeseburgers or cookies or whatever. So when cranberry sauce was suggested, I was just certain I would hear it. Okay, now I'll hear it as cranberry sauce. And I tried so hard to hear it. Or did I? I know I don't want Paul to be dead, especially not to have died in 1966, but I do want the mystery, the delicious mystery, the magical mystery. I crave it like foods eaten by television characters and such. Life needs mystery. Common sense and science are highly valuable things. I told you about my cancer surgery of 21 years ago. I was darn thrilled for the strides that science had made and so grateful for the skilled hands of my surgeons. I am a million light years from being anti-science, not even close. But science types do have a way of telling us, as seen on TV and the pop culture at large, with great smugness, exactly what is worth investigating and what is foolish garbage. I'm not asking them to use their valuable skills to investigate everything, just to dial back on rolling their eyes at the rest of us. Kind of like the Beatles themselves, for that matter. British citizens in general, when the Paul is dead subject comes up, ridiculous rubbish. Where is your love of mystery? And I understand that you it's like, you know, looking for clues to fit a philosophy that you have already decided is true or a theory that you have already put into place. Um, can't remember the phrase for that. It's on Astonishing Legends all the time. But um, where you're trying to retrofit to fit your theory 
you could probably prove anything. But also, where is your love of mystery, says I. Years ago, for example, to swing back around past science, plenty of things were considered wackadoo that we now consider scientific, such as the existence of mountain gorillas. Locals to the area, of course, knew that they were real, they existed, but naturally, until the year 1911, a white man from far away always knew better. How could such a ridiculous creature exist after all? And rogue waves in the ocean, considered the ravings of drunken sailors prone to ocean madness for centuries, they're now known to be actual scientific occurrences. And that, my dear ones, is just off the top of my head. Right on. Now, let's look at that Abbey Road album cover. On this familiar cover, the Beatles are crossing the street using a crosswalk, or zebra, as they say overseas. Paul is third in line. One is third in a funeral march. He is holding a cigarette, slang, coffin nail, in his right hand. Everyone knows Paul is a lefty. Is barefoot, as for burial, they say, but I'm no expert on such a custom. And is out of step with the other members of the band. Because he's dead. Removed to the underworld. Alternatively, because he's not Paul, he's fall. Yes, a utilized term in Paul is dead circles. Faux plus Paul or false plus Paul. Faux being French for false. False Paul, out of step. And in regard to the funeral march lyric in my song, Four Boys on the Wind, let us observe the Abbey Road Beatles in order, right to left, which is front of the line to back of the line. John Lennon, dressed in white and leading the group. He is set to officiate Paul's funeral service as the religious leader. Ringo, smartly dressed to serve as undertaker. Paul, eyes closed, barefoot, out of step. He is the corpse. George, casual in workman's denim upon denim. He's the grave digger. Oh, my stars, I would have been entirely goosebumps and believed all of it, every clue, every word, had I been a college student in the autumn of 69. I have to admit this is fun, like ghost stories at a slumber party. And maybe that was the draw at the time. Community, camaraderie, friends gathering, taking a break from their studies, and the steady stream of horror reported on Vietnam, communing over music from a group they'd grown up with, engaging in a puzzle very like a murder mystery, cover-up, a bunch of friends and peers, drinking beer and talking about spooky stuff as colder, veil-thinning weather drew near. I am in. So, even though I spend quite enough on books as it is, I tracked down a first edition copy of Turn Me On, Dead Man by Andrew J. Reeve. This blue and white hardcover, with the title typed out sternly in black, tempered only by the red stamp of Rock and Roll Remembrances, is the same version I picked up at the music library as a receptionist of the mathematics department at Washington University in St. Louis. Copyright 1994, after pouring its contents down me over a few summer days around 2002, I coveted a copy of my own, but the book was out of print, selling for $50 or more, which I couldn't afford. My husband was in graduate school. Two years later, the book came back into print in paperback form, Barefoot Paul crossing the street on the cover, a new and updated edition. I didn't notice until about 10 years after that that it had come out and it was still in print because the internet had given the rumor new life. I pounced on a copy and devoured it while working on the switchboard, memory tells me. 
The first edition has 25 chapters and three appendices. The new edition has 41 chapters and four appendices. And while I have been reading from both editions and researching this subject, I've also been working on songs for this and other episodes, as well as carving a lot of block prints to illustrate my new poetry collection, A Howling Breakfast of Moon Soda, and helping out at Cub Scouts. So I wanted to read both editions all the way through, but I just couldn't. Didn't have the time. But here's how I remember it. The first edition, read at age 27 by me, in a creepy 1904 university office that displayed mummies a hundred years before, left me with a pretty spooky feeling. Like that feeling. My cat is playing the piano downstairs and that just about scared the life out of me. It left me with a pretty spooky feeling. It's always possible I was just leaning into it, but I do remember some chilling moments. I closed that book wondering if just for a moment what the actual heck was going on. When I read the newer paperback at the age of 40, I discovered that the additional content seemed to swirl around internet blogs and their theories, and the book carried a distinct air of ridicule for the theory that I did not remember from the first version. Now, on side-by-side -side inspection, I can see that the original book, with chapters ordered differently here and there and with some sections rewritten, is the side one section of the new edition, and side two includes internet insights and skeptical viewpoints. Not to say that everyone in part one believed that Paul was dead, but the mystery was respected and showcased. I vividly recall scouring the newer book for something to chill my blood. That was my mission. If anything, I was going at it with more of a childlike mind than I brought to it 13 years earlier. I needed this mystery. So let me read one chilling moment I did find. In the autumn of 1967, two journalists attended a party full of celebrities where Linda Eastman expressed her interest in snagging Beatle Paul McCartney. But good luck because he was promised a Jane Asher socialite. Now reading from Turn Me On Dead Man by Andrew J. Reeve, page 174, second edition. An unidentified man overheard Linda's wish. Didn't you know that Paul was killed last year? The guest popped up. That's just a double who's posing as Paul, so sales aren't hurt by the tragedy. And you see, he went on as my mouth fell open, Jane is just going along with it to help out. The man she loves died last November. One day soon, she will announce a breakup. It's just a matter of keeping up appearances until the appropriate time. Jay Marks, the journalist who overheard it all, didn't believe it, even though the story was told by an unnamed friend of the Beatles. But the next summer, Jane Asher did break up with Paul, and Linda moved in with him in London. In March of 1969, they were married. They showed up in that November 1969 issue of Life magazine. Life reporters came sniffing around St. John's Wood, Paul's out-of-the-way Scottish home, in the thick of the Paul is Dead panic when everybody wanted an interview with him and nobody could get him to respond. When they arrived, he threw a bucket of water on them and grabbed at their cameras as they took photographs. After chasing them off, he went out after them in his car to apologize and agreed to an interview in exchange for that camera film. The interview is short, with plenty of photographs with Paul, Linda, their new baby Mary, and the older daughter Heather. Paul admonishes the Kloosters to worry about themselves instead of whether he's dead. He'd gotten married and was out of the press lately, which must have confused people, he added. Paul confirmed that the Beatles were no more and that he had only gone barefoot on the Abbey Road cover because it was a hot day. Although asphalt 
is hot on a hot day, so that doesn't sound very comfortable. That's just me. Clusters read the Life magazine article and quickly picked up on the fact that on the back of the cover photo of Paul and idyllic family in idyllic setting was an automobile advertisement for the 1970 Ford Marquis. And if you held the page up to the light, the Ford is barreling right through Paul's chest in Clooster confirmation of Paul's death by automobile accident. Well... The first edition of Andrew J. Reeves' Meisterwork ended on the mystery of a song by Terry Knight, Detroit musician of the pack in the mid-60s. In 1968, he wrote a song called St. Paul that made allusions to Paul being gone. Some lyrics of interest were, You say you want to live your life to the future. They say they've got dues to pay today. As well as transplanted Beatles lyrics like, I read the news today, oh boy significant from a day in the life. Not only did Reeve find that intriguing, he also pointed us to the mystery of the song being released by Macklin Limited, a publishing company formed by John Lennon and Paul McCartney a few years earlier. The song was released in late spring of 1969, several months before the Paul is Dead rumor really found its legs. So Reeve speculated that the song could have sparked an idea about Paul's death in some young people that summer, and the gathering of clues began. But why would Lennon and McCartney involve themselves in a borderline Paul is Dead song slash clue? And maybe the song can stand in for the Paul is Dead mystery as a whole. A question that cannot be answered. Was Paul dead? Was he alive and the Beatles were just messing with us? Was it all just to push the boundaries of art, fueled by heady times and drugs? What a mystery. I love it. Happy birthday to me. Send your emails to podcastaminer at gmail.com. Visit Instagram for song videos and various visuals at Podcast in A Minor. Books of my poetry and artwork are available on Amazon under the name Amy Zollers. Link in show notes. Artwork for sale on Etsy at Hypnos and Outrage. All songs written and performed by Amy Zollers. I leave you now with my attempt at an ethereal Paul is Dead song called Nightbird. Thank you again. See you next time. Twisting adrift as the chaos waylay you. Your song was not invisible, but you could not stay. It's my role in the play, and I must, and I must, and I must.